0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, March the 28th, 2019. It is episode 2410. Uh, 2,410 of the Survival Podcast. It's Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Time for your calls to the Think Line. It's been a couple of weeks since we had one because of some events. And uh, so I'm glad to be back to the Listener Call Show. I have a big backlog, and that's a good thing. That means I have a lot of calls to pick from. Gonna say that almost every call that I screened today got on the air. You guys are doing a good job. Remember how you do a good job to get on the air. Call the Think line at eight six six sixty five think Do so from a quiet area, not from the back of a motorcycle or while running a chainsaw. Make sure if you're on a cell phone you have a couple bars so you have good signal because no one will be there to tell you that you sound like this. Hi, Jack. I- and I was treat and I get them none this week uh, so you guys like I said the good make your point or ask your question bottom line up front style. Hi Jack my question is blah 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 and the details are and if you do that you are very likely to get through my screening process and on the air let's talk about the people that did that today. I got seven great questions today. Question on why I agree with Dave Ramsey on debt elimination but not on investing very good question. Uh, scaling up aquaponics to small commercial size. John Dowie of Dowie Farms has that question for us. Um, someone wants to know how to make mead like I teach you how to make mead, but they don't want to like actually do it because they made my mead and they went, yeah, it worked really great. It's really dry, kind of like a Chardonnay. that's the point, but they want it to be sweet. Okay. I'll tell you how to do it. So the mead comes out a bit sweeter. Question on how I would invest a $10,000 windfall. Check just shows up. Here's 10 grand. What would you do with it, Jack? Um, Question on buying real estate near a military installation. Light and heat requirements when starting plants and growing plants to starter size indoors. And balancing time with family against other demands on your time. This question actually is about... The responsibilities to your family versus your homesteading activities, but I don't really think that that's the way to look at it. It's period. The things that you want in your life that maybe your family doesn't versus the things that you need to do with your family. We'll talk about finding balance today in the anchor question on today's show. And With that, let's go ahead and dive right into it. Take the first call on investing and where I disagree with a guy I have a lot of respect for, Dave Ramsey.
1: Hi, Jack. This is Ted from California. Got a question for you about your uh, investment philosophy and how it differs from Dave Ramsey's. I know you've stated in the past that you agree with his debt reduction approach, basically, but you differ in terms of what investments he advises. Um, Just uh, wondering if you can, in summary, just capture what what your philosophical differences are. And the background of it is that I'm looking to put my – uh, retirement nest egg uh, where it can most count and uh, getting ready for retire so just trying to look at the pros and cons, different approaches for investing that sort of thing. Thank you very much and thanks for all you do. Bye.
0: Alright, so so like I said I actually have a tremendous amount of respect for Dave Ramsey. I, I do find him to be a little bit one dimensional and, and what I mean by that is for many years when I still had a J-O-B, I used to listen to talk radio and the one dimensional nature, not to mention the ridiculous number of commercials on talk radio, is one of the reasons I started the podcast. I was like, you know, I think people would actually like content and actually be able to get, you know, in an hour, get about an hour's worth of content instead of like 27 minutes worth of commercials and 33 minutes worth of content if you're lucky. Um, and then there was also the one dimensional nature of the thing. So Dave's deal is debt elimination and f- managing your money. But he's incredibly one dimensional, which is one of my problems. And what I mean by that, and let's say that somebody came to me and said, hey Jack, uh, Dave Ramsey needs you to be a guest host on the Dave Ramsey Show. Key is he doesn't want you giving your opinions, he wants you to handle the questions as close to like he would handle them as you can. And while I haven't listened to the Dave Ramsey Show in years, I have no doubt I could do that. I could answer every single question that comes into the Dave Ramsey Show exactly the way he's going to answer it, because he only has about five answers. He only has about five answers. You know, sell your shit, pay off your debt, debt snowball, invest your money, that's yeah. My investing problem with Dave's approach is Dave's approach is incredibly generic. And I don't think you should be generic with the money that you're planning to live the rest of your life on. So Dave's advice is as as, as follows you know, you invest if you have an employer four hundred one K or anything like that with a match, you max it out. You max out your IRAs, and then if there's anything left over you keep investing and you should be investing at least in all of that, in total, saving at least 15 to 20% of your income. I don't have a problem with that. That's not something that I have a problem with. However, the way he suggests to invest is as follows. Pick a well-defined group of mutual funds, four to six, uh, and diversify your money into those, and just keep putting money in. I'm not completely ready to lose my mind yet. Okay, you yeah, know, okay. It's a bit vanilla, but in general, it can still be a winning strategy. My problem is that he does not believe in ever getting the hell out of the way of a downturn in the market. Now, when I say this, I'm not talking about a correction of a few hundred points. When they tell you the market crashed because it went down 500 points, but that now represents 1%, and a 1% decline in a market in a year where the market's up 9%, that's not a crash. Okay? Back in 2008 when I first started doing this show was when I had my complete and total divorce from Dave Ramsey and his investing strategy. I got on the air and I said, when there was 10 people listening, I know there's only 10 of you, but if you have money in the stock market, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out. Get the hell out of the stock market now. Get out. I even had people write in, but I'm in a 401K and I can't take my money. Put it in a cash value fund. Whatever you got to do, get it out of stocks. Get it out of stocks. Get it out of stocks. Get out. Now, the reason for this was it's not because I'm clairvoyant and I'm smarter than everybody else. It's not because I'm Spiricodomus and I can see the future. It's because anybody with a modicum of attention to the financial markets by the summer of 2008 that wasn't a complete and total retard could understand that we were not going to have a minor correction. We were going to have a major significant blow to the market. Now, I was actually shocked at the bottom about how far the bottom was. But the fact that it was going to be bloody was painfully obvious to me. And that's why I was able to say, get out, get out, get out. So I'm not talking about day trading. But when Dave Ramsey says something like, you can't time the market, my response to that is either you or your money manager, financial analyst, etc., is incompetent when we're talking about this type of move. And where I really ended my faith in anything the man had to say with investing was there were people leading up to this who called him and said, I'm really, really nervous, because they started paying attention, I'm really nervous about this. I have a friend, he's in investing, he says a big bloodletting's coming, oh, he, no one knows the future, blah, blah, blah. And he had people even saying, like, do you think it would make even sense right now to like, just put like 25% of my money into cash. Oh, no, you don't do that, you just right. okay. This is incompetence, and I'm going to tell you what else I think it is with Dave. As much as I want to like the man, I think it's I think it's intellectual dishonesty. I do not believe for a minute that Dave Ramsey, who's worth millions of dollars, left all his money ride in the stock market during that period of time, because I don't believe that Dave Ramsey makes his own investing decisions. I believe that when you're worth that much money, and I'm not worth anywhere near as much, but I'm worth enough that I have a money manager. I don't have a financial advisor. I have a money manager. And my money manager makes decisions for me. Okay, like we're not doing this. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna tie the boat to shore for right now. Now, if it's a significant move, like hey, we're gonna go all cash or hey, we're gonna go fifty percent cash, I'm gonna get a phone call before that happens. There'll be some trading that he does for me, that just happens. And I get a statement here. Here says much, much money we made this quarter. But if if there's something like that, then you know we're gonna talk about it at least so that. I understand why he wants to do that, or I'm going to call him and say, hey, I think we need to do this, and we're going to do it together. And that's what people that are worth enough money to have money managers do. They don't not time the market. They don't just ride through it. Now, I will give you some defense of the man, and I'll tell you why I think he kind of has to do this. The last I checked, Dave Ramsey has something like three million people that listen to him on syndicated radio, plus... I don't know if he's on, I I don't really watch TV much anymore, so I don't know if he's still on, but at the time, he was on, you know, Fox News, MSNBC, all that, all their financial stuff, all the time. So he probably had exposure to 20 million or more people that are investors, you know, in one way or another. So imagine what would have happened if Dave Ramsey said, yeah, you know, I think the stock market is about to really go into a massive decline, and it would be a good time to take your money and put it into cash. And 10% of the people had done that in a day. It would have caused the crash. It would have accelerated the crash, and it probably would have made the crash worse. Once you get up to a certain level of, of public exposure, you get into a point where you can actually cause the market to be influenced by what you say. And so I think that it's possible that he might have ended up in a lot of trouble for telling the truth. I don't know that. But my view of investing is you, if you're not timing the market, you're not investing, you're gambling. And again, I'm not talking about day trading. I'm not talking about options trading. I'm talking about when every indicator on the planet is screaming a major correction or crash is coming, just sitting there and riding it out and saying, well, I'm dollar cost averaging. <laughs> yeah, I find it to be absolutely irresponsible. So that's where I disagree with him on investing. I am even okay with the general approach of a nice portfolio of mutual funds held as much tax-deferred as you can, outside of tax-deferred when you can't, and having that be the cornerstone of your investing. That part I'm okay with. Letting yourself take a 50% bath when you don't have to – I'm not okay with that, and I will never be okay with that. I also find his advice on gold and silver to be reprehensible. Um, there were many people asking about putting you know, 5% of their money into gold. At the time, gold was trading well under $1,000. In fact, I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 an ounce. This is before the market crashed, before gold made its run. His advice to those people literally cost them millions of dollars. So when somebody's advice on investing costs their listeners millions of dollars, I, I generally don't agree with their advice on investing. That's why. Now, I will tell you there is one place I disagree with his advice on debt. He will advise people to never, ever, ever, ever do something like take a home equity loan to pay off their debt. I understand why, and in some level I agree but in some levels, I completely disagree. Let's say we have the following scenario. A person has gotten themselves in a debt but has worked hard to pay the majority of it down. They've paid off all of their small credit card debts following the snowball method, which is we take the smallest debt first, we pay it down, we take that. Next one, we pay it down, we pay it down, we pay it down. They've done this to the point where their credit has become pretty good, and, and they can now get a home equity loan. A, maybe instead of even an equity loan, they can actually just refinance their existing mortgage, and lower their interest rate that they already have. Like they can get a better loan than they already have. And let's say that person is sitting in a house with uh, an appraised value of about $225,000, and they owe about $150,000 on it, and uh, they owe about $20,000 still in credit card debt. Credit card debt is somewhere in the neighborhood of 14%. Uh, Payments are very large. They can refinance the home. Take $20,000 out of it. Use that $20,000 to turn the credit card debt into a zero this second. And their mortgage payment will be the same or less than it already is. There is no place I can make an ethical mathematical case to that person not to do it. And what he's saying is if you don't go through the pain, you'll get back into debt. That is predisposing that you know the person's behavior. I believe there are people that that could happen to, and I believe that the majority of people in the scenario I just described would be far better off to go ahead and refinance the loan and pay off the credit card debt. And then they can work on paying off the house. And if you do the math, that person is going to be tens of thousands of dollars ahead in in the worst-case scenario, as long as they don't go back into the credit card debt. And again, when someone gives somebody advice that costs them tens of thousands of dollars, I, I don't agree with the advice. So... I'm not trying to beat the man up, and I know many of you like him, and many of you, your life is better because of him, so don't feel the need to defend him. I'm giving you my opinion of some bad advice from a guy that nine times out of ten gives great advice. Uh, Good question. Let's take another one, this one on aquaponics.
1: Hey, Jack, how are you? It's John from New Hampshire. Hey, I have a question about your aquaponics system. I know we spoke privately, but figured it'd be good for the show. Um, looking to take your system commercial um, and grow lettuce, lettuces and field greens and things like that. Just curious, what do you think it would take? To take your system with your wicking beds to a commercial level to produce somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 pounds a week of salad blend to start out and then hopefully be able to grow it. And what kind of a footprint do you think that would take? And then the third part of the question is, I live in New Hampshire, so I have to be able to grow this stuff in my basement, and i got to be able to keep that basement at the right temperature. So thanks, Jack. Great show. I'll talk to you later. Bye.
0: Okay, so first, John is a personal friend. And, John, I apologize that I have not made time uh, to talk to you about this one-on-one. I, I obviously can't do that with everybody, but you are a personal friend. And I said I would do that, so we'll maybe we'll try to do that next week. i got a busy weekend ahead of me. Um, I'm going to try to help you out in a way that can be as helpful to as many people as possible here. Uh, you keep bringing up waking beds, and I honestly don't think that's the most likely best bet for you. But I could be wrong. So let's, let's talk about that. So if you want to do commercial production with aquaponics, greens like lettuces and stuff like that is probably the number one crop that you can do because it's a fast turnover, high dollar crop by the pound. However, everyone that I know, that is doing commercial aquaponics, especially in any sort of an indoor environment, is doing rafting, basically deep water. So I I, I, I would think that you would be better off growing salad greens in a deep water system. Let me give the caveat on that. So generally, what you're doing then is you're starting lots of little plants, and you're growing up, you know, a full head size of lettuce, you know, romaines and butter leaves and stuff like that, and you're making a salad mix from that. Based on my knowledge of your business model, which is primarily selling microgreens to high-end stores, high-end restaurants, I should say, my instinct is the type of greens that you want to grow are even a faster turnover style of green and we're looking more at like mesclun mixes baby greens and things like that that will probably be something you can do far better with soil my experience in doing that with soil is you need fairly high-end lighting higher end than you're doing with your microgreens where you're just basically greening up the product at the end of the grow. So you, you, you're you going to have a substantial investment in lighting to do this. And I don't know that there is any reason, if that's what you want to do, to do this with aquaponics, other than the fact that maybe you want to do both, and you're going to be rafting and soil growing, so you're going to have a pump, you're going to have water, and since that's the case anyway, why not go with a wicking bed model that automates your irrigation? You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> well, there is a reason. So if you're going to be growing like a mescaline mix, then you are in a situation where the plants that you're growing, you're going to be doing a seed, a seed throw, very similar to what you do with microgreens, though just not quite as dense. And that means that the surface is going to have to stay moist. And if you're doing a wicking bed, you know, that last inch of soil is generally not very moist. The way we compensate for that when we're growing larger crops is we put down a layer of mulch. Growing mescaline with an inch of mulch over it generally isn't the best practice, right? We generally want to grow like a mescaline style mix. And if you've ever been to a restaurant and they give you that salad and it's all little baby leaves, that's what I'm talking about. You know, there's like 20 different mixes in there, and they all come together, and you got a little frisee and a little baby romaine and baby spinach and all. I think I think that's what John wants to do. So if you did that, then you're still talking about soil-based beds. You're going to have to have mist or something like that on to keep the soil moist until the plants germinate. Compounding it where is it worth doing a wicking bed is, since that plant's only going to grow about three inches tall before you harvest it. It's only going to put its roots down about two inches. So will it get much advantage from the wicking? Maybe, maybe, because generally one of the good things about this crop, unlike your microgreens where you've tested it, is it is a cut-and-come-again crop. We We sow it, we grow it, about 21 days we cut it, and probably 14 days we cut it again, we till it, we resow it. That is how most people growing these mixes do it. Again, though, I don't know that there's enough advantage doing aquaponics to make it worth that. Where maybe just a stock tank full of water and a pump and some mystics to keep things irrigated is a better way to go. Again, it's all back and forth here. And this is why we probably need to talk about this on the phone. And when we do, maybe I'll talk about our solution on the air. As you know, though, you get less problems if you don't water from above. So you might then look at doing kind of a shallower wicking bed. I would not do flow through. when you, Like you've used uh, the, the concrete mixing trays, like 21-gallon mixing trays. You can grow a lot in one of those. A lot. But if you do a flow-through wicking bed with those, I'm telling you they clog up really fast. So it would be more along the lines of I would actually make it like a flow-through and let it return. And you should run a timer and maybe run the water for two minutes, three times a day. Because that's going to run it till it overflows, but it's going to stop so it's not constantly running. That's going to cost less money to do as well. All right, now let's let's move on. Even if we're going to do rafting and we're going to do larger salad leaves and stuff like that. I really probably wouldn't recommend that you do aquaponics in any of this. I would recommend that you take the approach you're doing hydroponics. You are doing this commercially, and you're not doing it in like a high-tunnel greenhouse or something like that. You're not going to grow, you know, 50 tons of food a year or something like that, and you're never going to make any money on the fish. So if you're not going to make money on something, then I believe in eliminating the variable. So pump shuts down, fish die, right? Uh, fish have to be fed, all that shit, so I would say that you would then basically build a reserve tank you'd build it in the footprint of an aquaponic system you'd have a tank that would be like a fish tank, but into that tank you would just simply use organic fertilizers, garret juice, um, you know some some chelated iron solution, iron zinc, calcium magnesium uh, in fact, I would just get a good broad spectrum fertilizer and mineral uh, fertilizer that hydroponic system use, and just dump it in. And this way, you don't have to worry about throwing the system out of balance, killing your fish, whatever. Again, because we're doing this as a commercial setup. How much space? I don't know. It depends on how much you want to grow, man. Um, I don't know that I endorse this idea. I I would feel more comfortable with, let's set up basically deeper... If, if you want to do the mescaline thing, John... Let's start out and let's set up deeper versions of your microgreens grow trays. You already have all the technology figured out on how to do this. You're just going to probably need a, a, a bit of a higher-end light. Though you can try T8s, it might work, T5s, you know what I mean. But, like, you're going you're gonna to need a good full spectrum because we're asking the plant to do more than just get up to its, you know, we're, we're going to be on it for a set of true leaves. Right, with microgreens we're generally stopping before we get true leaves and you know you come up with a way to irrigate the surface for like the first two days first three days so you get good germination and then water from beneath after that and I would start there and see what that teaches you about your and I would do it with two to four trays just eat it yourself Or give it to your chefs of samples or whatever so that you can see if this is going to work. And then if it doesn't work and you're not getting the growth you want and, you know, the lights you're using are not giving you the growth that you want and you have to invest in better lighting, you can then get two or four of those trays working and you can do the math and say, does scaling up to a full commercial size and integrating this into my business model, does it work? Because your climate, like you said, is a short growing season, but it's still six months. And you may find that something like a, a, a group of four by eight raised beds outdoors that you farm six months out of the year and you supply your your customers six months out of the year with locally outgro- outdoor grown stuff might be more financially advantageous to you. And it gives you half the year where you're doing less work. However, I I think I know what you're going to say. That's what everybody does. And that's why these guys rely on out-of-state production for this product. And I want to compete with the local people in a way that they can't. And, and then I'm going to say you're going to – I need to know more, man. I need to – here's some stuff to get you thinking. This is enough to get other people thinking about this type of a process and about the limitations of it. And I know I'm going to hear the word nasturtiums. And I I don't know that I got a good answer for that right now. Um, But my gut, dude, is as you're growing your business, if you can finagle some way to develop a piece of property with a greenhouse on it, a big greenhouse, like a high tunnel, you will be much better off. And you probably can get at least into, like, being able to grow 10 months out of the year. And that may be enough to give you what you want. And I know that's not easy to do right now. So let's do this, man. Get in touch with me next week. We'll talk, and I'll see if I can do better for you. But those are my thoughts here, and hopefully that helps other people as well, thinking about scaling up production and what we can and can't do well with aquaponics and indoor growing and the expense that's added of lighting. John makes good money with what he does growing with 100% artificial light, but he does that because he's selling a product by the outs right? You're selling microgreens. You sell by the ounce. As we move up, it gets a little more difficult to offset the expenses. Let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack, this is Nikki. Hey, I have a quick question for you in regards to mead. So because of you, I have started to make mead and my first three batches are very dry. Uh, I would really like them to be a little sweeter. In fact, one of those batches is three flowers blend per your recommendation. Tell me, what would your recommendation be to make those a little sweeter um, as they are more like Chardonnay-like uh, in their dryness? And uh, I think I would just prefer something just a little sweeter. But what would you recommend to do that? I appreciate your feedback and love your show. All right, bye.
0: So here's, I'm, I'm not taking on the caller too much, but this, was, this is how I heard this call. Jack, I made me the way that you told me to. It came out absolutely perfect. Please help me ruin it now because I just sweet meads now. Okay, so there's there's a couple ways that we can do this. Um, one way would be, and it would let, help you make the mead that you want to drink right now more drinkable for you. One is to basically, and people call this killing the yeast. You're not killing the yeast. You're basically sterilizing the yeast. And I mean sterilization in the standpoint that, like, if you sterilize a person, they can't have children. So you can use a product called potassium sorbate. And when your meat is finished, and I mean it needs to be fully finished because it does not kill the yeast. What it does is it coats them so they can't bud anymore and can't reproduce. So whatever's left can do whatever it's capable of, and then any new sugar it will not be able to ferment. So you could take a a mead that you're happy with, go ahead and rack it off the trube, which is your big layer that has the majority of the yeast that's still around in it. There'll be some in the product itself. Treat it by the directions that come with the product with potassium sorbate. And then you can dissolve some honey in some warm water and slowly add that as a concentrate to your final mead, and taste it until you get the amount of sweetness that you like. The beauty of this is that you will be able to get the exact amount of sweetness that you want. You won't be under or over. You'll come up, and once you know what it is, you'll say, when I make this mead and ferment it with this yeast to this level, I'm going to need exactly this much of a honey addition to bring the sweetness up that's one way to do it another way to do it is if you're following my method you're using two yeasts not one and you're using yeasts that are really really good at what they do and they are high attenuating and high alcohol tolerance so another option would be to select a yeast and probably a good strong ale yeast that has a tolerance somewhere of about eight to ten percent and use a different yeast. The advantage of this is you don't have to really change anything. And, you know, three pounds of honey to the gallon is going to give you an alcohol by volume of somewhere to 16 to 18 percent. So if we use the yeast that absolutely can't get past 12 percent, once we hit 12 percent, the delta, the other four to six percent that would be in there, well, It's going to be residual sugar. It's never going to ferment out. The alcohol is plenty high enough that it's not going to spoil or go bad on you. 4% alcohol does that in spades. And you'll end up with a sweeter meat. The disadvantage is that when you taste it, it still may not be what you're looking for. It may be under attenuated. You might now say that it's too sweet, right? But you can figure that out. Then you can say, okay, now I need to back my honey down to two and three quarters. And you'll eventually find what works for you that way. That's another way you can do this. And then the, the the third way that we can do this is we can simply increase the amount of honey. And I go with three pounds a gallon. If you go to four pounds a gallon, even the yeast blend you're using is going to crap out on you. And it's not going to be capable of bringing that full amount to full fermentation. The advantage of this is it's as simple as using more honey, The disadvantage is that it is it is going to have more of a real honey-like flavor, more of a... It's hard to even explain. It's not just that it's less dry and more sweet. It's now a thicker, and it's got, as it ages, means that are made with really high amounts of honey have a, a, a characteristic that I actually kind of enjoy... But a lot of people won't, so you're going to have to figure out which one of these works for you. The last option would be kind of what I started out with, with you know, adding more to sweeten, because then you're only adding it to sweeten. So you might make yourself basically a simple syrup out of the same honey you make your meat out of, which is 50% water, 50% honey, and boil it down about 5% of volume to make an invert syrup that will be basically a simple syrup made with honey. And then just like you would mix a cocktail and you would use a certain amount of simple syrup to bring the sweetness of the cocktail up, then simply add some of this honey syrup to your glass of mead as you drink it. The advantage of this is, number one, you have an exceptional dry product that will age beautifully, and you may over time develop your palate to where you appreciate it more. You can sweeten it to any level that you want. And you now have a product that you can share with people. If a person likes a dry product, you have a dry product. And if they like a sweeter product, you can bring the sweetness up to something they enjoy. So that would be kind of like your last method. So all of those methods work, and all of them are perfectly acceptable ways to do this. And now you have to figure out which one works best for you. On the final thing about developing your palate further... I, I know that might sound a little bit arrogant or something, but, but it really isn't. I've seen it with so many people, including my own wife. When I met my wife, her favorite alcoholic beverage, without a doubt, was Ernest & Julio Gallo White Zinfandel, which to me tastes like pink Kool-Aid. And uh, what I have to say is, today she won't touch that. She won't have a thing to do with it. And, and some ways that you can do this, and we did it with her with like really good Sauvignon Blancs, so a really good Chardonnays, good buttery, a little bit of oak. Chardonnay, but you know, don't just sit down and have that glass of mead. Have that glass of mead with a really good cheese and a little bit of bread. Something that cuts against it and contrasts with it. And see if that begins to like open up. Because what happens is as we as we mature, and I mean just in age alone, our tastes change. This is why kids really, really love sugar and adults not as much. So that's one thing. But the other thing is we then begin to be able to develop the ability to taste more complex flavors. And when we first begin to do that, we can't. We have an expectation that this thing will be a certain way, and when it isn't, we just immediately dislike it. But we don't really dislike it. I'm not saying that that's true for everybody. I'm saying for many people that we give the, these more complex adult beverages, a chance over time, all of a sudden you really don't want them to be any other way. And there's a reason that if you go into a good wine shop and say I'm looking for a sweet wine, they're going to have a very small section for you to look at and a very large section for everybody else. So be open to giving that a little bit more of a try. And you can even try simply just adding a little bit more honey. Go to go three and a quarter, go to three and a half pounds to the gallon and make that more complex mead with a little bit more sweetness and try letting these ones you've already made, let them get a year of age on them, and then taste them in more complex meads. And try, see, with wines we're pretty heavy on, if it's a, dry, a white wine, we're going to drink it chilled, and if it's red wine, we're drinking room temperature. Try some of your meads at room temperature, too, not just cold. That often changes things, or try them cold if you're doing it. Try different temperatures and you'll find that some meads, even though they're they're they all kind of are more analogous to a white wine, are fantastic chilled. And some meads are fantastic at room temperature. Um so there's all of the different things I can give you with trying to bring you around to the more sophisticated palate of a drier beverage. Uh with that let's take another one.
1: Hey Jack. I recently got a check uh for about ten thousand dollars. It came from my parents they sold some property that was used to be the family farm. I'm trying to figure out where I should invest this in. My parents said, Oh, use it to pay for you know your next vehicle. That seems pretty I don't know, lame. Um, I'd really like to try to invest this in something that has lasting value uh that I can hand on to my kids. Didn't know if you have any recommendations. If you do, I'd sure love to hear it. Thanks. Bye.
0: Okay, so I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of burning pocket syndrome here, right? So, I mean, part of it is, you, let's talk about your parents and, and, and being fair with them. First of all, you've gotten your financial shit together, and they probably know that, so they appreciate that, and they respect that, and that's why when they came in extra money, they wanted to give you some because you're not being stupid with your money. And it's much easier as a parent to gift a large sum of money to a child that is being financially responsible than one that's being financially irresponsible, emotionally anyway. Um, so that's what they did. And part of it is, I have an abundance. I want to share it with my son, and I want to give him some level of happiness. And I want to, instead of holding on to money to, like, die and letting him inherit it, I want to see him enjoy his life. And I want to be part of that. So that's part of why I say, oh, go buy a car with it, right? I'm not saying to do that, okay? I'm just saying that's, that's where they're coming from. My instinct is what I would do with this money right now is I would go put it into a savings account, forget that it's there, and not worry about it until you need it. If you invest $10,000 at a 5% interest rate, it's not that much money, man. You know? Um, it sounds like you're already investing for your retirement. You could pile this into your retirement account and it over your life it'd have a significant effect on the balance but if you put it in a savings account and change your mind next week that you want to do that you'll be able to do that. If next week you change your mind and you do decide to buy a new house and you need some extra money for the down payment or to buy things going in like new appliances or something like that or repairs to the home you know, it'll be there. I, I would just at this point say hey, this is a true windfall. And what I mean by windfall is you know, there's a giant apple tree. Can't reach the apples up there. Bunch of wind came in, and I went out. And apples I didn't have yesterday, I have today. The thing is, the apples can go bad. We either need to eat them, we need to make them into a pie, we need to make them a preserve, make some apple cider out of them. But they're gonna go bad. Money doesn't go bad. And what happens a lot of times when all of a sudden there's this big chunk of money in our hands, like oh I gotta do, I'm losing money by not investing it. You cannot lose what you do not have. You can lose what you have. And a lot of times when people get burning pocket syndrome with money, they either spend it irresponsibly or they go after an investment that they don't fully understand and they end up losing. So my instinct would be, let's set this aside for right now. Let's think about what we want to do long term with our lives. And I will say this. If you're going to be buying a house, I have no problem with kicking this money into the purchase of a home? None. You may want to think about that, though, because the other thing I said with a house might be more beneficial. So we go buy a house, and when we go to buy a house, this is what people don't understand. When you're selling a house, you don't want there to be anything wrong with the house. You want your house to have what I call, and I wrote a book with Dustin DeFries on this, called The 1% Effect. and You can find it on Amazon. It's called The 1% Effect. And what that means is you just need to be 1% better than everything else in your buyer's purchasing range. And that means that no matter if you are having $900,000 budget or a $100,000 budget, every buyer is a settler when it comes to buying a house. So when they go out, they want to do the best they can for $155,000. That's the most money that they can get their hands on. So everything they look at is going to be $130,000 to $150,000, right? That's if they're $150,000 cap. And if your house is 1% better than everything else they look at, you're going to sell that person a house because that's how people make decisions. I always said that was smart as a seller. I never said that was smart as a buyer. No, what you want is the house that isn't in the top 1%. You want the house that is in the top, you know, it is in the top 5% of value, but it shows in the bottom 20. It needs new cabinets, needs new carpet, or it needs new countertops. It needs to be painted. It's got some repairs that need to be done that weren't. The reason you want that house is it is going to sit on the market longer than all the stuff that shows better. Even if it's worth more money, it's going to sit longer in general. Okay, In general, because the first time a person like me, or hopefully many of the people listening to the show comes along, they're going to buy it. But what they're going to do is they're going to lowball the offer. They're gonna realize, like, okay, this house needs this, 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 and that. And what that usually means, not always, sometimes the, the the seller is lazy as shit or doesn't listen to their agent and doesn't want just doesn't care, right? What it usually means is the seller does not have the money to do the improvements. They know it would be better, but they don't they, they don't have it. Maybe that's why they're selling the house. Maybe they bought a new house and they're making two payments. You know, whatever. Maybe they got to move really fast and they didn't have time. But they also don't have money. They don't have the money, and that means it's not going to happen. And every month that goes by, if it's a $1,200 payment, they're $1,200 in the hole. It's like even if somebody paid twelve full price, they're paying 1200 less, twelve hundred, And every month that's happening. So when you have money in your pocket and you are buying a house, you have a position where you can be tough as a buyer, because you know, I have this 10 grand. So I can look at this house as though that10,000 dollars was spent already. but I'm going to get the control how I get spent. And so if you, you know you sound like you're thinking about buying a house, to me right now. Until you make that decision, I would keep this money safe and liquid. Once you buy that new house and you've gotten through that process, then you can look at it and say, Do I really want to use this money or do I have other money? And do I want to go ahead and throw this into my retirement? Do I want to just leave it sit there? Do I want to go ahead and put it and you know break it up in about, you know, thirty thirty three hundred dollar pieces? And ladder it into a CD as a relatively liquid form of capital. You know, you you got every option in the world. But right now, thinking about buying a house, man, I love that. Especially if you can save us some more money. If you walk in, you're buying a house, and you got your money for a down payment. You got your emergency savings over here, right? You got your retirement going. You're contributing to your retirement. You got your life together. You're not in debt. And you're walking into buying a house, and even with the down payment, and maybe you're getting that by selling your existing house, okay, fine. But even with the down payment, you got $20,000 in cash in your pocket, and you can look at that house through a $20,000 improvement lens. You're a ball buster of a buyer. You are in the command seat. You are looking for that house that people aren't buying because there's other inventory that shows better, and that guy's up against the wall. And now you can put the screws to him and the guy's selling the house for, I don't know, two hundred ten. And you go in and go one ninety. The guy goes, Well, uh uh two hundred five. You're like, no, I one hundred ninety. Uh you know, and you could pull them down as far as it, maybe you end up one ninety eight or something. Well, now you just took twelve grand off your expense, plus you got twenty grand to work with. Right? This is when you guys want to know why I've always been able to sell my homes, I know the 1% effect, and I know the other side. I'm an asshole seller, and I'm an asshole buyer. And the reason is, I'm not out to make friends when I'm selling a piece of property or buying it. The pro- I have, There's nobody in my life I've ever bought a property from or sold one to that I've ever spoken to again, ever. And, I, and it probably will never happen that I will. So I'm in it for the deal, right? And that's where I think you've got the most leverage right now. Let's take another one, this one, on another real estate question. Uh, I guess the first one wasn't, but this one really is a real estate question.
1: Jack, for someone looking to purchase a home, how would you assess minimum acceptable distance from a military base? Background, I'm a civilian employee for a Department of Defense agency. My workplace is located on a base which your previous guest, Joel Skozen lists as a non-primary nuclear target in his book, Strategic Relocation. I'm looking to buy a house in the next few months, which would be my first home purchase. Give you have any recommendations for a minimum distance from a military base in general, controlled access points, or certain potentially hazardous assets, such as munitions testing ranges or aviation fuel storage, I'd appreciate your insights. Thanks for all you do.
0: Let's start out with Joel Skolzen, first of all. I did have him on the show. He did make an interesting interview. I think he has some good ideas about what a strategic relocation looks like. Um, And I mean, no disrespect to anybody here that is a a member of the Latter-day Saints or Mormon, however you want to call it, because I don't think that he would be someone one would call a mainstream Latter-day Saint. Uh, I learned after he was on the air that he is part of a group that takes a particular interpretation of what you would call a modern prophet and his belief that the United States and the Soviet or the Russians, right? I'll call it Soviet Union, are gonna have a limited exchange nuclear war is based on a, a, a person's interpretation of a religious text. Uh, you can do whatever you want. I do not make decisions in my life based on someone's interpretation of a religious text and i don't think you should either and if i had known that was where he was coming from i probably would not have taken the interview with him and had him on the air just want to clear that out next you work at this base so even if you believed it you're not going to live far enough away that it will matter um if they get nuked right if they get nuked you got problems, right? It doesn't matter. And, you know, the, it, it is a very high probability that for all the hype about nuclear exchange, that, you know, a nuclear bomb impact could be off by 10, 12, 20 miles anyway. It, it can happen, right? So I'm not going to make the decision based on the fact that you might get nuked. I think if we have a nuclear exchange, it's not going to be very limited. And I think we all have problems no matter where we are. So I'm not making a decision on that. The fact that it's a military installation is not going to influence my decision that much as a whole. I don't want to live directly next door to it. In other words, I don't want my property and the military installation share a border. Uh, I don't probably want that with any major, and I'm going to consider it an industrial uh, complex, right? Um, Just too much potential there. And then anything else like... You know, if there's something there to be concerned about, um, some chemical concern or something like that, then I'm going to treat that like any other facility that has that problem. I'm not going to care that it's a military installation. So I have a fixed number for you, but if I found a property that ticks all the boxes that I'm looking for, and it was five or ten miles away from a military base, I'm not not buying it. I'm not not buying it. I'm I'm far more concerned about, you know, let's say you give me a property that's unincorporated, and I can do anything I want to. I can have chickens. I can have cattle. I can build a fence. I can build a shed. uh, I can put in a regular septic system. I can put in a a leach field. I can do whatever I want with it, and it's 10 miles away from Fort whatever. And then i got another property that's 25 miles from Fort whatever, and it comes with restrictions that prevent me from doing what I want to do with it. I'm buying the one near the military installation. I mean, you know, and I, I spent some time on some military installations. And generally speaking, the activity on military installations is pretty intensive on certain areas. And you've got a whole bunch of woods. And there might be some training and all that goes on in there. But there's very little relative activity in those areas. So I'm not going to take a huge consideration in this. Um, from a standpoint of, well, it's a military installation, so something bad could happen, right? Uh, if we're going to start not living where something bad can happen, we're going to have very few places left to go. Again, though, if there's a, a specific active issue that could cause you problems, then you get away from that issue as far as is necessary for you to feel comfortable. So I hope that makes sense. Let's take another one, this one on growing plants indoors.
1: Hey Jack, Jake Robinson Tennessee. Hey, I got a question about growing uh plants under lights. Should you cycle on and off the heating pad along with the light system? So I've got some Kingbo lights and I've got some heating pads and just wondering if it would make sense that when I cycle the lights off, I cycle the heat off so that the plant gets the uh change in temperature. As well as lighting, so it mimics nature. Or, does it matter? Just leave the uh, leave the um, heating pads on all the time. Uh, I'm a, I'm starting seeds, uh, plants from seeds, so I leave the lights on all the time until they break through and start growing a few leaves, and then I start cycling. Uh But should I just leave the the heat the heat pad on, or is there a time to take the heat pad totally off? of a plant as well. All right, ma'am, thanks. Look forward to the answer.
0: So my answer is probably, Jake. So let's think about this. Um, The majority of the growth of your plant is going to occur while the lights are on. And the reason for the warmth isn't because the plant will die without it. You're indoors already. So uh, we're not trying to keep the plant alive. We're just trying to get it to grow faster. And the primary time that we're most concerned about this is with germination. And so indoors, under lights, you may not even need heat once your plants are getting some size to them. Um, you can make that determination by, you know, turning half your, half your heat off and seeing if you can see a difference between the plants. Because you're paying for that heat, right? And I know you this year, Jake, are trying to grow enough plants to sell some. So the less money you have into them, the more money you make off them. So if we can eliminate heat, Then maybe we need to, uh, or maybe it's smart for us to. Turn it off at night absolutely works with a caveat. I would say, until those plants get like their second, or like if you're still seeding and doing new flushes of plants, until that plant gets, you know, two, three sets of true leaves on it, I would keep the heat on. And then you can decide whether you want to run it just when the lights are on during the day. Or just uh, not at all anymore because it's that cold soil that slows your germination rate down. That's the main reason we heat our plants. So, uh, pretty simple, pretty short one. I'll tell you why I like at least shutting the heat off at night. This plant is eventually going to go outside. We're spoiling it right now. Let's not overspoil it. And plants are designed to grow in systems that have thermal gradients and it gets colder at night. So, I think, especially with plants, peppers. Really gets stimulated by having temperature swings. So I would at minimum do what you're suggesting, but I would also consider uh, at some point you just probably don't need the heat anymore. And one of the things you can do to make that determination is get your thermal gun, turn the heat off, and see what the temperature of the soil is and the temperature of the leaves of those plants under those lights without the heat. And if that temperature is significantly above, the room temperature, I figure your room's at least 68, 70 degrees. You know, if you're getting a, a soil temperature with the lights alone in the 80s, that's plenty warm for that plant. If it's a high 78, 80 degrees, you know, you are you probably don't need the heat anymore once that plant's up and growing. And, again, every dime you don't put into them is another dime you get out of them when you sell them, or even if you're planting them, it's more of a return on the food. So good question, Jake, and good thinking. Let's take one more for the day on developing balance in our lives.
1: Hello Jack this is Zach from East Texas. I had a kind of in-depth question for you today. Um, I was wondering if you have any advice on balancing your homesteading projects and also family responsibilities. I've got a lot of things going on you know around my house and also I've got a lot of things going on in the house with the family. And I'm just having a hard time balancing the two. So I know it's kind of a personal question, but if you have any tips, since you've already been down that road of raising a child and uh, and doing homesteading projects, maybe you had some advice. So have a good one.
0: So as I said during the intro, I wanted to change this from balancing taking care of your family and spending time with your kids and your wife and all that stuff uh, and, and your homesteading projects to just, in general, the things that you have other obligations and desires to be involved with that take you away from your family and your family. Because I always try to answer questions where they're the most broad, and they help the most people. And while I'm sure there's plenty of people that, you know, between their compost pile and their garden and whatever, uh, they feel pulled in two directions kids and baseball games and date night with wives and stuff like that there's people that they feel that pull against their 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 side hustle job uh, or their employment or their main business and it's something that we always have to try to find balance with and when you're a driven person no matter what you're driven to do you're always going to have to do this uh and, and and work on it and You know, one of the things I always told my wife when I was building the podcast was, I know I'm taking a lot of time away from you now, but it's so that I can give it back to you later. Well, I could see a path to that, but, you know, you putting in one more garden bed doesn't necessarily do that. So, to me, when in doubt, side with family. You'll never look back when you're an old man and think, you know, that one Saturday, I wish I would have spent it putting in one more garden bed. But you may look back and say, gee, I wish I would have went to my son's or my grandson's baseball game. So I think what you need to do is it's not about balance as much as it's about prioritization. And one of the ways that I dealt with this, with career and building businesses and my wife, was to say that we're going to have scheduled time together. We're going to have a certain night of the week. It's a date night. On that day at 6 o'clock, I don't give a shit what's going on unless somebody's dying. I'm not looking at it. I'm not touching I'm not doing anything. You know, we're going to have maybe one day a week where I take my lunch break and you and I go grab a coffee or something like that, and I'm going to put you on my calendar like you're an appointment that I have to make next week in New Jersey. And when I first said that, she was very put off by it. She did not like it at all, and she felt that it devalued her. And what I said to her, I said, is, well, honey, um, how much do you think I value the sales calls I make, the clients that I have, the people that I work for, the people that I work with, the people that work for me? Um, Do you think I value them? Sometimes I think you value them too much. Great. Wanted that answer. So when I make an arrangement with my sales rep in D.C., that next Tuesday at 9 o'clock I'm going to be at the train station for him to pick me up and I'm going to be in town for three days and we're going to go do five appointments a day. Do I put that on my calendar? She said, yes. I could see her roll her eyes because she knew where I was going with it. And I said, why do I do that? She said, so that you won't miss it. I said, and what we're discussing is that sometimes you feel left out that I don't spend enough time with you. So don't you think you rate as highly as all the other things that go on my calendar? And we came to an agreement that that did, in fact, make sense. What she wanted wanted to do was rate so high that she didn't need to go there. And this is why we tend not to take this approach with people we love, but it's also why they tend to end up in the back of the line. Because everything that's on that calendar or Rolodex or however you manage your time, everything that's on there gets done, and then whatever's left, we spend doing other things. And sometimes there's so much on there that when we do get to that point, all we want to do is take a freaking nap or have a beer and watch TV. And now that's what she's left with or that's what your kids are left with. So what I would do to rectify this issue is to say, here's the stuff that I don't want to miss. I just I don't want to miss this. That's going on my calendar. That's going on my schedule. Here's the things that I feel like I owe my children and my wife. That goes on the calendar. And now, what's left, you can figure out what goes on the calendar is the scheduling time to work on your homestead and scheduling your downtime. And what you're doing then instead of balancing is you' prioritizing. And that's the best answer I can give you this question. And it's someone like me that was so driven that made a determination. When I moved here to Texas, I was 21 years old, and I said, 21, I don't want to be a mechanic. That's the only skill I have out of the Army other than leadership. No one knows me. I don't want to go to school, and I want to give myself, in four to six years, I want to be making $100,000 a year, and I have no idea where I'm going to start, but I'm going to start somewhere, and I'm going to drive my ass off to get there, and I was able to do it. I was able to do it by the time I was 24 years old. I did it in three years, closer to four because I was close to 25 by the time I did. The only way a person that's that driven is going to also have a good life with people they claim to love is for those people to get an equal priority to all those other things and be scheduled as such because they're just as important, if not more so. It's not you don't go there because you're more important. You go there because you are. So hopefully that helps a lot of you dealing with this type of situation, no matter what the reason is that you're dealing with it. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. Guys, I hope that you did enjoy the show. And if you did and you want to support us, you know there's a couple of ways to do that, right? One, you become a member of the MSB. Trust me, guys. You become an MSB member, you'll get your money back. And even if you don't get your money back because you don't use the discounts, and I don't know why you wouldn't, uh, You basically what you're saying is, look, I listen to this show, I think it's worth 20 cents an episode. It's really 18.3 cents, but who's counting, right? You think it's worth 20 cents an episode. If you're like, you know what, I would pay 20 cents an episode for TSP if I had to, join the MSB, and you'll be able to do that. Uh, And next up, you can start your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day for TSPaz is sadoff Sumac. Yes, Sumac, like the bush that grows outside. Many of you are like... It's poison, you fool. You'll die. No, you won't. Uh, First of all, the sumac I'm talking about is grown in the Middle East. Put that on the shelf for a second, though. When you go outside and you see a sumac bush, and it's got red berries on it, it's not poison sumac. Poison sumac grows white berries, and they hang down. Sumac, staghorn and smooth are the two varieties in North America, grow an upright berry that turns red. It will be green early on, and it will turn red. That's what you're looking at. It grows up, kind of, sort of, in some way, looks like crepe myrtle, but the berries grow like an upward cone style. That's sumac. You could actually use that very similarly to the Mediterranean variety. The Mediterranean variety, though, is actually in the same family as the cashew nut, and it is one of the greatest seasonings out there. It has kind of a citrusy flavor, but it's got some other things going on on it. If you look at my review today, you will see a bunch of different uses from something called carrot fries to a lamb sausage and a lamb stew that can be made with that sausage as well and some other really cool ideas. I will also tell you how to make zatter. Zatter is a seasoning or zatar, right? I don't know how you want to say it. It is an incredible kind of secret seasoning. Uh... And it is used in a lot of Middle Eastern things, and I tell you how you can make it. And the keystone ingredient in in Zatter is uh, or zatar is sumac. And I believe that if you learn how to make this stuff and you use it in certain things, it will change your life from a culinary standpoint just a little bit. In fact, uh, one of the most excellent uses I've seen of it is a new. Um, See, Alton Brown is where I'm going with this. Alton Brown did the show Good Eats, and he's now doing Good Eats Reloaded. He did that show for 12 years, and he's come back around, and he's like going, yeah, I could have done that better, or here's what I do now, or here's the changes I made, which I think is really cool. And he just did a reloaded version of his roasted chicken. And he used this seasoning in that. And I give you the link to the recipe for that as well. It's pretty, pretty outstanding. It really is. So anyway, check it out. Sat off Sumac. Uh, and the one little caution there, you know, it's not poisonous, but if you're allergic to cashews, you might have an allergic reaction to this because it is in the same family. That's like the only heads up there. Another thing is, this this stuff from Sadoff. one of the reasons I've selected this is my brand I recommend, it has no salt. Now, you would think that if something's just called sumac, it would have no salt. It would be sumac. Uh, a lot of the products that are sold, especially that come from the Middle East, Um, have salt in them and it doesn't even say on the label they have salt when you taste them you know they have salt it should not taste salty so they sell it for less or they sell it for more and make more money but they're cutting it with salt that is not what you want so this is a a brand you can you know you can rely on to, uh, to be exactly what it says that it is. That's why I recommend it. And remember, anytime you buy anything at T-Spaz or even just start your shopping there, you help the show and me no matter what you buy. So it's an easy way to help us out. That brings us to our Song of the Day. Song of the Day today as we continue spiritual week, it's called See the Light by Green Day. And um, this song is about kind of that journey that we talked about with Carry On My Wayward Son. And... Uh, it's about the belief that there is something higher out there. There is something more to the world, something more to the universe than just what we see. But also a realization that none of us really know what that is. We could think we know. We might follow a particular religion. But in the end, we really don't know. But in the end, the journey and the desire to know and the hope that someday we do is a big part of what drives us as people. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well across the river fell into the sea where the non-believers go beyond belief.